Once when I um, was actually here on retreat in this uh, guy house some uh, number of years ago, with a teacher I'm very fond of, uh, also fortunate to regard as a friend, Ajahn Sachito, who's the abbot of a uh, Buddhist monastery in uh, Sussex, an English Buddhist monk, he arrived at the beginning of the retreat and he kind of sat down and he's sort of wearing his brown robe, sort of shaven head, looking like some ways someone from another world than most of us sitting there looking much as you do now. And he looked at us and he kind of looked and he sort of, hmm, thought like this, hmm. He said, hmm, I wonder how much real nourishment you get. It was very interesting since we'd had a great supper. You know, standard guy house, soup and bread and everything else. And uh, at one level, I felt very full at the time, very well fed. And yet when he asked that question, it, it, it really... Uh, made for a, a sense of useful reflection for me and so what I'd actually like to speak about this uh, this evening is what we could call the uh, discovery of true nourishment. We might ask, what what is nourishment? What truly nourishes us? I think it would be a useful question to ask or to reflect upon because in our lives it can often be, I think, that we, we really live on a junk food diet. You know, we are pretty keen on instant gratification, on strong, highly tasty experiences, and we don't want there to be anything nasty in the burger or the, uh, the veggie kebab or whatever it is we might be into in our particular flavour of fast food. But we look for quick results and we look for instant gratification so much of the time. But what we notice with uh, junk food, and probably we all indulge in it now and then, or perhaps more often than that, and certainly leaving aside the metaphor of junk food in terms of life, what happens, often is that that gratification is all too brief. That sense of satisfaction that we get from the way we might live our lives can often feel rather tenuous or transient. We're soon hungry again. And uh, in terms of you know what it's like to uh, feast out at the, the local chipper or whatever, it's just kind of nice to do it now and then. But you may notice, as uh, certainly I do, it can leave the body feeling rather heavy, the mind kind of sluggish. And and sometimes how we arrive on a retreat, it seems our mind is rather sluggish and our body feels rather heavy and it's not very comfortable just to inhabit our experience. And it kind of leads for me a little bit to the reflection of whether, as I was suggesting, perhaps in a certain way we, we sort of are consuming our life in the way of junk food. Trying to get our experiences, to give us what we want them to, to make us happy, to provide satisfaction, to be always comfortable, to be never uncomfortable, to be always pleasing or flattering or uplifting. It seems challenging, if not impossible, in fact, for this to be what occurs for us in our lives. We all seem to encounter a mixture of the difficult, the challenging, and the sweet and the delightful. Often the, the proportion of the mixture doesn't quite seem to be the way we want it. Even if we're willing to have a mixture, we would really wish that there would be 
a bit less of those things we don't like and a lot more of what we do. It's quite understandable, quite natural that we would live and act in this way. And this is much of what the world around us seems to be geared towards promoting and encouraging and uh, suggests that it's able actually to provide. But there's this sense that goes with it of having to keep doing this process, having to keep going through this process of, of trying to find satisfaction, of trying to find what we're looking for in a way that often doesn't seem to come to an end. And there's a, I regard a rather wonderful story that uh, I like to tell rather often on retreats, and uh, probably some of you know it as well as I do by now, over the years. It involves, uh, and, and I think it uh, casts some very good light on this particular situation, it involves uh, Mullah Nasruddin, who's a, a Sufi teaching figure, both a wise man and a fool although we suspect perhaps his foolishness is simply to wake us up to our own. And one day Nazruddin is uh, sitting in the uh, corner of the village square on market day when some friends come up to him and find him sitting there with a large pile of red chilies in front of him. And he's apparently, it seems, eating the chilies. His face is bright red, his nose is streaming, his eyes are sort of, sort of swimming, and he, he seems quite distressed. And his friend says, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? He picks up a chili and eats it. And his whole body shakes with the, the fire and the heat. And uh, he says, I'm eating these chilies. His friend says, Mullah, I can see you're eating these chilies. Why are you eating these chilies? Nazarin looks up and smiles. He says, I keep hoping to find a sweet one. One of the things that is, I think, really important to reflect on is that if the way we're living our life, if what we're engaging in, hasn't yet brought us what we're seeking, hasn't really touched us where we most wish to be touched in our hearts, then the, the repetition of what we've been doing already may not get us any closer. The idea that I just keep doing it more and harder and faster and get more experience and eat. I'm not satisfied by eating one meal of junk food so I just need to eat more and more. If we believe that, well we know what the consequence would be. It would be really unhealthy and ultimately very unpleasant for ourselves. We know that. And yet at some level, I think what we do is we attempt to consume our life. We see life as somehow a consumer product, something that I'm supposed to fill myself with, experiences. And so many experiences are possible for us, so many different things we can engage in. And there's a place and an appropriateness for that, but when we do it trying to somehow fill ourselves up, it doesn't work. It doesn't really seem to do it. And I think this isn't news to really any of you. I can't imagine you would be coming along to a retreat if you didn't already have some serious questions about that whole way of life. Because from that point of view, what we're doing here makes no sense at all. What we're doing here doesn't make any sense from the point of view of just trying to fill ourselves up with experience. Because really what we're doing is um, eating very simple food. 
stripping away all the unnecessary, all the extra, all the sort of stimulation that we seek, all the entertainment, all the gratification that we're used to having, that we turn to the moment something feels a little difficult or we feel a little like we want something to lift us up. We don't have the refrigerator, we don't have the television or the computer or the telephone or whatever it is that we use. Here, we're just left with ourselves. And what's that like? To be left with yourself and your experience and not have that what was previously available and easily to us, the capacity to keep just grabbing new things to try and enjoy or feel better or just distract ourselves from our discomfort or our agitation or our dissatisfaction. I suspect this comes from my own experience and equally from speaking with uh, many people such as yourselves on a retreat. I suspect it's actually sometimes really not easy at all. Not everyone lets on. We sort of sometimes stiff up a lip and look like we're doing okay, but actually, and we can be doing okay, sure. But there's something about it that's really challenging, that's really hard. And yet there's something that's really worth it something about this process that's really worth it. And that's, I guess, what I'd like to speak about. <coughs> You're probably aware of the uh, movement originating, I believe, in France, the slow food movement. The uh, encouragement to remind people of the value and the benefit of eating slowly and uh, eating quality food that's been prepared with good ingredients over time that isn't about instant gratification or necessarily strong hits of intensity, but about something else that's rather different. And really, in terms of life, what we're doing here, this is the slow food movement. This is the process whereby what we're looking at is something about the quality of what's happening, rather than the quantity or the particular flavour that it has. to slow down as we're doing here. And whether or not you feel yourself to be slowing down, you might feel actually like you're speeding up. What we notice as we come into this environment is we become very aware of our speediness. Speediness of mind or speediness of body. But that very process of becoming aware of it is actually the beginning of it actually being allowed to slow down. And actually as we slow down, what happens, and it may be something that you've noticed a little today, it's certainly likely to be something you notice as the days go on, is that we experience, we sense, we feel, we contact what's going on. Partly because we're making the intention to do so, but also because we can't really help it. We can't help but begin to feel, to be touched, to actually connect with our experience when we're not overloading ourselves with too much too much to do, too much to have, too much to get, but just experiencing our life, experiencing your life as it is. This process of consciously meeting, opening to, entering wholeheartedly into life, your life, life itself, this is the basis of true nourishment. 
This is the process which we are entering into, that we're engaging in here in this retreat. And of course we begin from a place of perhaps feeling kind of hungry for something, feeling like we're looking for something. We can feel a little driven or pressured or pushed. We want to get to wherever we're going soon. We don't want it to take a week. We don't want to take it years. I want it now. You know, I don't want to have to have an uncomfortable body or an uncomfortable mind along the way. Who does? And yet, if we've got one, sometimes we do, it seems, it's really helpful just to acknowledge that, oh, there's a process going on here. Maybe it's not all going to happen at once. And that very attitude we have of wanting it all to happen now, wanting it all to happen quickly, is actually part of the problem. It's actually part of the suffering. Because by wanting everything to change quickly, we don't allow ourselves to see what's really here, what's already available. And there's an image that uh, comes from the... uh, Sort of the, the Buddhist cosmology of the uh, what's called the hungry ghost, and this is a sort of a, a realm of existence which could be seen as a, a particular cosmological state, or simply as a, a a metaphor for a psychological condition which we might be familiar with. And the, the hungry ghost is this being with a very large belly, a very very small neck, so it can never get enough food into its belly to feel satisfied. <coughs> And it's something that I think we can sometimes relate to and we, we see, we feel that sense of wanting, of needing, of desiring for something to fill us up, to satisfy us. Whether it be an experience, a place, a home, a person, a meal, or something more subtle like a, a good meditation. Now that would do it, wouldn't it? Maybe. The interesting thing about the hungry ghost is not only that its neck is very narrow so it can't get any satisfaction but the, the image of the ghost is like it's not really here that's what I associate with it's sort of it's sort of here but sort of not here it's not really solidly, substantially here and for ourselves when we're looking in that way when we're always seeking for something other than where we are we're always looking to something else or more of something else or something different when we're always seeking for that, we're never actually quite here. Because we're always caught in this movement, in this momentum, away towards something that we have imagined will give us what we're looking for, which we have believed or been told, or have just hoped and prayed, will actually give us the nourishment that will fill that within us that feels needing to be filled, or calling to be filled. So we notice as we sit here, as we're present, as we're walking, as we're standing, we can notice the pull and the call of our mind saying, I want, I don't want, I like, I don't like. What about this? What about that? All of this going on is our habitual way of engaging with life, trying to manipulate, trying to control, trying to fix, trying to predict what will happen next. And all of that, it seems, 
goes on. And if we if we sense it, if we feel it, I think it's reasonably clear that it's it's not a condition one would wish to really live in or choose to abide in. It's like we experience ourselves on retreat, particularly on the first day or days, in a condition for many of us where we would say, I don't want to be like this. I don't want this experience. What's going on? And the wish and the hope and the yearning is that, of course, meditation practice or the retreat will provide the resolution. And certainly it can be a profound contribution to that. But in this we need to understand that a retreat isn't just intended to provide us a better experience or a nicer and more satisfying experience than the ones we had before. Because otherwise it will be just the same process. It'll be just like trying to get more experiences. And experiences like the chilies in the story with Nazareth. In the end, no matter what the experiences are, even if you had a pile of um, sweets, you know, chocolate, if you start eating them, and eating them, and eating them, you eat one, it's nice, you eat another one, it's okay. Mm, three or four maybe, and if you keep eating them, they're, just, they're not nourishing. Even nice things don't do that. Sweet things. It's something else. When we're eating them from that, it's not to say they couldn't be a delightful experience, but when we're eating them from the point of view of somehow trying to fill ourselves up with them, they will never succeed. They will never succeed. And so, what other options do we have? And the, the primary other option, we could say, is rather than trying to control or manipulate our experience, to actually look at how we meet and engage with it, to look at what it is that's here that's having this experience, which we call me, or my heart, my mind, my body, and, and see what's going on. This is the basis for the process of training the heart and mind. That when we come into life, we, we're not necessarily shown or taught how to live well. We're told how to get things, how to make things maybe, how to make lots of money or try to, but that doesn't do it. And the form of education we have doesn't really necessarily give us any answers to the deeper questions. It's much more about survival actually, just telling us what we need to do, or how we'll be able to provide for the basic survival of body. And yet that's not enough for us. There's something in us that knows that more is possible, that wishes for something deeper, more satisfying. And in order to uh, enter this territory, we're, we're asked, we're invited to uh, engage in what we call mind and heart training the conscious cultivation of our capacity, of what's possible for us. This is the basis for the transformation that we seek, for the satisfaction that we long for. The Buddha once said, I know of no one single thing that contributes to suffering more than an untrained mind. And I know of no one single thing that contributes more to
to the end of suffering than a well-trained mind. And, you know, as I said, it, it sounds like, you know, I thought we got how many, 10, 15 years of training in our education. We probably, you know, thought that's what was happening, that's what we were told. But actually, much of what we've learned, I believe, is it's really it's like we've learned how to fill ourselves up with information. And not just our, our life, but our mind. We, we tend to just gorge on information. That learning really, to a large degree, involves being able to assimilate, accumulate and process information, which is useful. Without that, none of us would have got here today, for sure. But it's not actually the same as training. It's certainly not the same as the kind of exercise that we need to be healthy. Nyanaponika Sarah, the, uh, the uh, originally German but a Sri Lankan Buddhist monk, once wrote in his book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, speaking of our heart-mind, which is Dharma teaching, Buddhist teaching, is not really seen as a separate thing, mind and heart are very, very interwoven together. He said, of this heart-mind, that it is bound all over and yet can win freedom here and now. And this is really the, the primary recognition of, of teaching, of practice, is that there is the sense of limitation or boundness, dissatisfaction, and the possibility of release, of freedom, of discovering an end of that confinement or limitation. So we pay attention, we cultivate, focus, bringing our attention again and again to the breath, to the body, coming back to the sense of our foot touching the ground as we take a step, as we stand still, trying and beginning to notice what's going on through the day, what's moving through our mind, through our heart, moving around us, the sounds, the sights, the circumstances that are happening, just paying attention, cultivating that quality of presence and connectedness that allows us to sense, to feel what's happening, to be actually where we are. And in this we see how, in fact, challenging it is for the mind to settle, how it's not an easy thing. It's really important in this process that we are wholehearted and dedicated and committed, which is why we need to understand what we're doing, but that we're also incredibly gentle and friendly in the way we relate to our own process. And I kind of see this a lot as a useful, a useful metaphor for understanding this. It's like training a puppy. In order to live in the human world, a puppy needs to understand certain things, or basically it won't be happy. It needs to be trained. Now, the first thing, one would, this is a kind of an interesting thing actually before talking about training, with dogs are I think a bit like human minds in a certain way, and that a dog, if you feed it, will eat what you feed it. If you feed it more, it will keep eating, and it will just keep eating the food until it's actually sick, and then it'll eat some more. And we're a bit like that. We kind of just take in information. We take in experiences. We get busy. We do things. We don't stop. If you were to only feed a puppy and never exercise it, it would get to be really unhealthy and really unhappy. 
And often our condition is very similar in that we've taken in so much but we haven't really exercised, we haven't really trained. We haven't done that work and so we find ourselves also feeling kind of heavy, not so happy, not so healthy sometimes. And so, training the mind involves coming back again and again to where we are, noticing what's there, seeing what's there, and yet noticing and acknowledging how many times we're taken away without giving ourselves a hard time for it. To be really dedicated, and so far as we can be, wholehearted and our willingness to come back to where we are. It's a bit like, as I said, with training, I was going to say, with training a puppy. If you put a puppy, you want to teach it to follow you. Puppy needs, dog needs to know how to follow its, its owner. Um, you put a puppy behind you, you say, heel. What does the puppy do? Does it walk behind you? No, it runs off to go smell some flowers or chase a butterfly. If you're a wise trainer of the puppy, you see, you say, oh look, that's where you are. Ah, I see. You get the puppy, you bring it back, you say, heel. Now if when you see the puppy, you say, bad dog, bad dog, hit it with a stick, yell at it, put it back behind you, heel. Pretty soon the puppy gets the idea that this is a pretty unfriendly place to hang out, and at every opportunity it goes heading off to somewhere else. But if you actually create an environment where you know the puppy runs off, come back, you say, hey, puppy, okay, just see if you can stay here a little bit. See what's possible. The puppy actually realises it's kind of friendly here, kind of nice. Sure, the flowers are interesting and the um, you know, the butterflies are exciting, but maybe I'll stick around. The mind's a bit like that, creating a friendly, inviting environment for your for yourself to inhabit is part of what we learn to do in practice. Coming back again and again to where we are, we find ourselves more able to do so more capable of actually connecting. And we begin to learn the, the gentle and yet demanding and challenging lesson of life, of what it is to actually meet life the way it is, what it is to actually learn to connect with our experience. So much of the time it's hard to find peace. It seems like we really struggle. It, it seems like a sense of happiness, well-being, peace. Why shouldn't it happen to me? I'm a decent person. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. And yet so often it seems absent. It can be incredibly frustrating. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that this isn't because somehow you did it wrong and everyone else got it right. We sometimes live in the sense that it, it's me that hasn't figured this out and everyone else is getting on doing very fine because that's most of the impression we tend to give off that we're doing okay, don't worry about me and because everyone's doing that although it's not necessarily the truth inside we think it's just me that actually feels unsatisfied with eating you know, junk food and there's a poem I came across a couple of years ago that I think speaks to this very well just how difficult and how rare it is to find that sense of satisfaction in our lives. But for many people, at least, it seems. It's entitled If, and I suspect, no, I don't know this, that it's based on a poem by Rudyard Kipling called 
the same title is, it's kind of a classic poem about all the qualities that a, um, a young man needs to accomplish in order to become a, a man, effectively. And it's very, this isn't about that poem, but I think it's related. And you, if you know the poem, you'll, you'll see why I say that. But um, the poem is entitled If. If you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbours travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate, if you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are, you are probably a dog. Now, I don't think it's a hopeless situation, but uh, <laughs> anyone can recognise in that the sense of, oh yeah, that's not easy, is it? That's not easy. And yet, we can learn. And we do, in the process of retreat and meditation and practice, we do learn what it means to find that peace and contentment just where you are. And in this we begin by... Uh, Stopping. Again and again, stopping. Stepping out of the habit, the momentum and the busyness of our life and our mind and just landing where we are. No matter where our mind has gone, no matter what has come up, just coming back to here, to now, to this. Whatever it's like. And it seems actually quite like it should be something we'd like to do. It seems quite a trip to rest, to uh, relax. This isn't something that we look at it and think, oh, that sounds like a bad idea. I don't want to relax, I don't want to rest. Maybe sometimes we think I need to get busy and do something, but I think part of us really resonates with that. And yet, we notice how it's not easy to do so. How what's inside us tends to come up and come out and generate all kinds of ways. One of the things that's... Uh, important here is to just acknowledge that this is what happens for all of us. This is what happens to everyone. Sometimes there's tiredness, there's weariness, we can feel waves of heaviness. And it's like it's like this sort of this this thick, dense weightiness just sort of comes dragging our eyelids down, down, down. You know, and it's like we just can't seem to stay awake. Or at other times, you know, and when it's happening, like, oh I wasn't so tired. If I only wasn't so tired, then I could meditate. I really believe it too. But of course, 10 or 15 later, minutes later, we're actually you know, a bit further into the sitting, knees hurting or our backs aching, we're sitting there going, you know, and we're thinking, what am I doing? This is crazy. These people are silly. What do they make me do this for? You know, it's filled with restlessness and agitation. Of course, not a trace of drowsiness. Oh, the meditation seems really difficult. It hasn't. The absence of the drowsiness has not solved the problem. Something else has happened. And we're thinking, if only this restlessness would go away. If only I could just relax. If only I wasn't uncomfortable. If my mind would shut up. Then it could all happen. Then my meditation would get somewhere. But whatever comes next, it's likely to be the same. There'll be something else going on. 
And sometimes what happens, and this is kind of remarkable how often it's reported, is that we're sitting there and we're either really heavy and tired, or we're agitated and restless. And I I've had it, I'm giving up, this is hopeless. Everybody else can do this, not me. We look around, everyone else is sitting there. And they seem calm, their face is serene. They seem relaxed and yet very upright. We think, wow, they're really getting it. Those, everyone else, they're, you know, so close to awakening. You know, Buddha's in the next moment, if not the next sitting. You know, but me, <sighs> hopeless. And having recognised that it really is hopeless, we just give up and come. And the person beside us, two moments later, looks, opens their eyes, looks around, and there we are, sitting. I think, wow. <laughs> that person looks really calm. They're probably having a great meditation. And we tell these stories about what's going on. And somehow lead ourselves in the position of the one who's not able to do it. Of course, some people have a different process that goes on that's more sort of looking around thinking, yeah, I've got it, I can do it. They're all falling asleep, they're all restless. I'm going well. <laughs> and then at some point, of course, that falls apart too. See how we tell ourselves these stories? You don't have to believe them. You don't have to stop them happening, but you don't have to believe them. The mind tends to generate stories, and one of the things we learn is that actually... We can just be here anyway. It doesn't matter what the stories the mind is generating. That is part of the, just as a light show of the mind. Not the most important thing necessarily. Although we need to see what's going on. We need to understand what's happening in that process. And we need to really acknowledge the momentum of our lives. It doesn't just stop because we want it to. But if we actually learn what fuels that momentum, that busyness, that franticness, that fragmentation, and stop supporting that process, then it does actually begin to slow down. We do actually find ourselves landing, connecting, touching in with ourselves. And yet, an immense amount of patience is needed. An immense amount of patience. This really is a very challenging undertaking. Even if you've done it many times before, it's still challenging. And if it's the first time, well, actually sometimes it's not so challenging because one doesn't have the expectation of what it should be. But nonetheless, we see there are places where we maybe look around and what you know, people doing slow walking meditation, mm-hmm. and you know, not a retreat goes by where someone doesn't have you know, brought to mind the image of people who've gone crazy, walking around slowly looking like that, you know, or maybe it's, you know, some benign form of zombies, dawn of the dead, you know, sort of the, at least they're not sort of threatening anyone, but they're acting pretty much the same. And it's, it's like at some level we, we, we're generating stories about something. On the inside it can feel quite nice, quite sweet at times to just be walking slowly. On the outside it looks weird. Or standing. Standing meditation. What on earth is the point of standing going nowhere, doing nothing? Doesn't look like meditation. At least meditation you're supposed to sit on the ground across your legs or, you know, look look like you're doing something spiritual and all of that. Standing? And outside in the cold when the wind is blowing? You've got to be stupid. You know, are they just trying to make us be miserable? 
Sometimes I'm sure people have that thought. And I have to confess, you know, I drive out there, it's cold, you know, what are you doing out here? It's cold, we could be inside, you know, it's warm inside. And you, you know, after a few minutes, five, maybe ten, the coldness isn't what stands out anymore. Something else happens, and just this sense of, wow, there's people standing in a circle. And just a sense of the, the freshness of the wind. A certain brightness that comes when we actually stay steady with something unusual, or even a little uncomfortable. We don't just let ourselves be blown away, or blown out of our track, our trajectory, our direction, our intention. We stay steady with that. There's something in us brightens because we realise, oh, actually, I can do It is possible. It's not necessarily easy. It's not like I'm doing it perfectly, but it's not required. But we can actually engage in this journey. And actually, it doesn't take so long before we start to feel and sense. Even just moments where we just connect with a breath or a step, or just the feeling of the wind on our face. When we're not thinking, it's cold, it's cold, it's cold, it's just like, oh, it's wind, it's fresh, it's alive, wow. And just something in us is touched. It can happen. Not necessarily because we're looking for it to happen or expecting it to happen, but simply because what we're cultivating is presence, is connection, is touching our life. And as we turn towards that, and again and again, orient and incline and direct our heart and mind towards that, it's as though life begins to respond to us, we begin to sense, we begin to feel. And that quality of a sensing, a feeling, is something that actually nourishes us. I mean, what really nourishes us is many things, perhaps. But certainly one of the things is that when we're actually connected, when we're not fragmented, when we, when we have a sense of really being whole in our meeting with an experience, what we call samadhi, or collectedness, when the mind is gathered, not fragmented, when it's focused rather than dissipated, when it's steady rather than moving or shaking around, as it starts to become possible, there's just a sense of a, of a brightening of the heart and mind, a certain natural sweetness and a, and a healing that takes place, just simply through gathering our attention where we are and connecting. And in doing so, there's something that's really powerful about it, because we're, we're honouring, we're recognising and we're honouring the potential we have as human beings to be awake. And this capacity that, that's represented by the Buddha, who was a human being like us, who struggled and suffered as we perhaps have done, and who understood the nature of this process in such a way as to actually awaken from it, to understand freedom and peace, to recognize the deeper truth of life, that in having done so and pointed out the path and given teachings that enable us to also enter this process, the Buddha also represents for each of us that this is possible for you. Yes, you. Not just everyone else or someone else. This is an incredibly important reflection to allow ourselves to receive, take in. 
And so the value and the importance of having an image of that possibility of human potential manifest. Something that's recognized in, in the traditions, in Buddhist tradition and other traditions. And learning to be present, learning to be connected, is a way in which we receive ourselves fully in that process. We allow our hearts to be filled with our lives. And this is actually the nourishment that we think. There's a, uh, a lovely poem I'd like to uh, read that speaks to this by John Fox When Someone Deeply Listens to You When someone deeply listens to you it is like holding out a dented cup you've had since childhood and watching it fill up with cold, fresh water. When it balances on top of the brim you are understood. When it overflows and touches your skin you are loved. When someone deeply listens to you the room where you stay out the new life, and the place where you wrote your first poem begins to glow in your mind's eye. It is as if gold has been discovered. When someone deeply listens to you, your bare feet are on the earth, and a beloved land that seemed distant is now at home within you. One aspect of the invitation of meditation practice is to become for ourselves that someone who deeply listens to you. To listen to ourselves, to be here, to witness our life, to receive it. And this is a profound expression of kindness and love. To see us, to meet us as we are. To be present, to connect with, rather than always to be departing for somewhere else. This is the filling of our heart with life. And this is really what we're doing as we connect, as we come back again and again, as we pay attention to our breath, as we pay attention to the step, as we connect with where we are. In doing so, we're rooting, as it were, we're rooting into the, the very basis of life itself. We're rooting into the, the present moment, into where we are, into what's actual just as a plant needs to root into the soil in order to grow. We need to allow our roots to go in to where we are, to what's our ground, the ground of being. And just as a, as a plant needs warmth and needs light in order to grow, so too we. That the, the light we bring is our attention. It's like shining the light of our attention on our life. That's what we're doing. And the warmth is the, the kindness, the allowing, that just lets it be the way it is. And yet, is caring, is interested, is seeking to find what will truly serve the transformation of our life. And with this rooting, this touching, this grounding into the earth, with attention, with light, with kindness, with warmth, our life, our heart, our being grows, just as a plant grows, naturally. It's its nature to do so in that situation. It's not something you have to make happen. 
simply supporting those conditions, being present, being alert, attentive, being open, being soft, being gentle is what happens. The very nature of life is to unfold in those conditions. And it happens. It happens quite naturally. And we come to see that what's here is actually rich. What's here is actually rich with the capacity to nourish every level and aspect of our being. But we need to let ourselves be here for that. The Chinese poet Wu Min writes, Ten thousand flowers in spring. The moon in autumn. A cool breeze in summer. Snow in winter. When your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. And in this way, practice is an invitation to live in the best season of your life. The season that is now, that is here, that is this. And that as yet, perhaps, we haven't yet fully learned how to receive, how to enter into. And yet we can, and we do, through the process of what we are engaging in together. And in this process of coming home to where we are, discovering the true nourishment that is born of tapping into, of reawakening our true nature, our conscious connection with life, with truth, with the depth of being, that is the very wellspring of life and the basis from which vitality, joy and well-being flow. Can we just sit quietly for a minute or two please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.